Our passage this morning is Romans 12. We'll look at the first two verses. Um, As you may already know, we are going through a new series. The series is called The New Year, The Real You. Uh, We're really trying to hone in on conversations in holiness based on six really important New Testament passages. The first one was by Peter. The next five will all be through the Apostle Paul. And uh, just to remind ourselves of last week's discussion with Peter, um, Peter is using language there in that first chapter of his first epistle, really echoing the Exodus and echoing the fact that we are now spiritual Israel and we have been set free. And remember, he gives many, many verses of indicatives, that is, truths about you. Your inheritance is in heaven, waiting for you, imperishable. And then he finally gets to his indicative, which is primarily hope. Set your hope in Christ. Of course, the, the imperative also includes uh, to be holy as God is holy. And we talked about holiness last week, reminding ourselves that it, it's, it's God's radiance. It's his glory. It's, it's, it, when you see his holiness like Isaiah, you fall in love. You want to be like him. And in fact, we learned last week that he invites us to be like him like a great father, just like our earthly fathers should do. Let me show you how to do what I'm doing. So that's what we're going to keep talking through the next five sermons. And this morning we come to a classic passage, Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. Uh, Continuing this idea of indicatives and imperatives, that's grammar. An indicative is what is true. Right? We use that in English. We say it's indicative of him or her to do whatever, to be late, to be kind, to be giving. It's indicative of them. It's like them. It's what they are. An imperative is a commandment. And what we've been saying is imperatives in the Bible come after the indicatives, but really for all of us, they come before. Most of us struggle with saying, I want to be this indicative, so I'm going to do all these things to get there. And the Bible does it the opposite. So in chapter 12, we come to Romans where Paul says, therefore, and he has in mind the 11 chapters that precede it. And there are six imperatives in those 11 chapters, six. So Paul spends 11 chapters saying, here's the gospel, here's who you are, here's who Jesus is. So this morning, as we look at Romans 12, 1 and 2, understand it's resting on the shoulders of the indicatives that have come before. So follow along with me for the two verses. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing or acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we long to not only do your will, we long to want to do your will. We long that our affections, our desires would line up to yours. Lord, we, we believe your way is true, though it's hard often to see that played out in our own lives, in our community, our families. And so Holy Spirit, we pray this morning as we look at these two simple verses, the rich content, we pray you would continue to transform us into your image. Amen. 
I've mentioned many times one of my heroes, Jack Miller, uh, his wife, Rosemary Miller, is uh, still living. She's, I think, 99. Um, Her story was a little bit different than Jack's story. Jack was this pastor that would get out in front of everybody and preach and share the gospel and, you know, just what you would imagine an evangelist being. Rosemary, she would say, I took care of the family. I took care of the home. She actually referred to herself as a recovering Pharisee. What she means is it took her a long time to believe, really believe what her husband was teaching. That is that the gospel transforms you. And when she did, she wrote a book called From Fear to Freedom. Uh, In one of her lectures, she says, what I wish I would have titled it, what I wanted to title it, was a caterpillar in a ring of fire. Now, I've never seen that, but I would imagine if you're a caterpillar and you're in this ring of fire, uh, you wouldn't like it very much. For one, no one wants to be a caterpillar, right? But secondly, if that was your lot in life, you don't want to be surrounded by fire. And her point was you need rescue from above. You have to be rescued from above. The, the word, the major imperative word in our verses is transform, metamorpho, uh, where we get metamorphosis. If you've ever studied metamorphosis as a kid, what do they do? What's the example? A caterpillar to a butterfly. So I'm going to use that as my opening illustration. I'm going to go back to five years old and say, that is the goal. Like we are being transformed. When we are saved from something by Jesus, he doesn't just save us to be in this ring of fire that we call the world, our flesh, the devil. He saves us to grow a pair of wings, which is Christ, and he flies us out. That's the hope. That's the goal. So this morning, we're going to look at transformation, and we're going to look at what it would look like to be transformed. Three points. We're going to look at what is the point or the plan of transformation, the power, and the process. So transformation. What is the point of it? I'm going to begin with the very end of these two verses. To restate the verses, I'll sort of paraphrase them. Paul is saying, therefore, chapters 1 to 11, because of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. And then he gives in verse 2 what he means. Don't be conformed to the world. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And then he gets to the point that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. I mentioned last week, I heard a pastor preach on holiness, and he said holiness is happiness, and maybe it was the way he said it, maybe it was where I was spiritually, but it just kind of hung on my, it felt like a weight on my shoulders, and I explained that I needed to learn more what he meant by holiness. And so last week, I hope, and if you weren't here, I'll tell you, and I've already mentioned already, is holiness is, is really something you see in, in the Trinitarian relationship of the Father, Son, and Spirit, this intimacy, this love for one another, uh, this, this, the way things really are supposed to be, this righteousness. And I mentioned Isaiah because when Isaiah goes into the throne room and sees God in his holiness, it's like he's saying, I've never seen anything this glorious before. Every word I've ever spoken everything I've ever thought is wrong compared to this. Remember the illustration, if you were here last week, of of Dan making that prime rib and Brian saying, you've ruined prime rib because that's the best. And so when we come into God's presence, God's holiness, we'll know it because everything else pales in comparison. 
So we come to our passage, though the word holiness isn't there, God's will is there. The Greek word thelema, it means God's desires, God's desire. When you go to, if, if you have a person who leaves their will, they're leaving you their desires for how their estate is to be distributed, a will, a desire. So God has desire. God has a way he wants things to go. We uh, read Psalm 27, and it says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. So what Paul is continuing what Peter said. He's saying, you are invited in. Here's the plan. Here's the point. Your transformation is inviting you in to like and love and care for what God cares for. Paul says in our verse 2, the renewal of your mind will, will let you by testing to discern God's will. And that word for discern, again, some of these words need to be teased out a little bit. They're not wrong, but when you really can go to the original language and understand what's behind them, uh, there's sometimes more power. I just want, I'm not trying to say that the word discern isn't correct, it's fine, but other words would be proving or approving of his will. Think about that for a minute. He doesn't say that you may just rigidly form yourself into doing what God says. Well, maybe. Maybe that's where it feels like. But what he's actually saying is when the gospel comes to you and you go to God's will, it's going to transform you to want to do it. Like you're going to approve of his will. So the plan, according to Paul, is that we would grow in our love of God's will and God's ways. Um, if you, I talk a lot about Psalm 73 in the Psalm 73, Asaph is struggling. He's struggling with envy. He says, my feet had almost slipped. And he, he's remembering the wealthy, the arrogant. I don't know who he has in mind, but they, they don't have any pains. They don't have any problems. People follow them. They don't follow anything I'm saying. I'm paraphrasing. And then he says, until I went into the sanctuary and I discerned, I discerned their end. Like I saw, I concluded, I recognized, I learned the direction that that leads. And that's what snaps him into repentance. Francis Schaeffer, um, a famous theologian, um, he's passed, but in the, in, starting around the 50s until he, he died in like the 80s, I believe, um, he wrote quite a bit, had a pretty big influence. People like Chuck Colson came to Christ through his ministry. Um, he wrote a book called How Shall We Then Live? He was a, a, really sent as a missionary to Europe, and he began to see, as a theologian, philosopher, apologist, things that really didn't attack America till later. And one of the things he discovered was postmodernism, and he, I don't know that he used that term, but he began to notice that people were losing a sense, and this is a big word, that there was a meta-narrative. That is, that there was a story behind all the stories. So in modernism, whether you're a Christian or a pagan, you would have said, or, or pre-modernism and modernism, that there's still like a right story, a right way, a right direction. Now, how you think that came about might be based on your own religion. Postmodernists say, we don't really agree that there's one thing. And so what he's trying to do is recover through his writing and in this book, the way God's will affects our lives. And one of the things he uh, builds on is this concept of worldview. How do you see the world? What is your worldview? One of the things I love about RUF, as a, when I was a campus minister, and Shane continues that in the ministry here, 
is one of the ways RUF, if you want to know how RUF differs from other campus ministries, there's no competition. We love all ministries. But one of the things that we love about RUF is it's teaching students to develop a biblical world and life view. How does my faith impact what I do with politics, with the arts, with my career? For example, RUF doesn't want the best RUF person to go to ministry necessarily, though sometimes that happens. It's no, go into the calling you have. Be an engineer, be a doctor, be a politician, but take your faith with you. Take your worldview and go into your sphere and apply it to see redeemed redemption happen in this world. That's the goal. And Paul is telling the church, that's my goal for you. And I just want you to know, God has a will. There is a God. I don't know all of the details, but his scripture give me, gives us the revealed will. And we are to conform our lives to it. And when we come up against it and we don't like it, we don't really have the freedom to say, Ah, that's not the God I believe in. Who made you God, right? Our job is to come to the scripture and ask, Lord, show me what this means. Teach me your will. Teach me to follow your ways because I believe and affirm that you have a will. That's why Schaefer titles the book, How Shall We, and the word is simple, then, T-H-N, how shall we then live? Like if this is true, this Bible and what should our life look like? And so I just want to begin there because as we move into the other more, not more important, but more practical pieces of these two verses, we have to begin with God has a will. It's perfect. It's good. The word acceptable is strange. In our culture, we say it's acceptable. That's not what that means. Paul means it's like worthy, it's righteous, it's, it, it passes the muster, you know, it, it te- stands the test of time. It's acceptable. And so the question for us as Christians, I think initially is this, are we up for trusting God that if we come to his will, it'll be good for us and good for him? That's the question. Are you there? If you're not there, you might need to back up and ask yourself, do I really follow Jesus? Is that really who I am. Uh, The good news is this series is not for people who have it all together. This series is for Christians. It's for everybody. If you're not a Christian, you're welcome. I want you to come hear this series. But if you're a Christian, I hope you'll come in and hear, okay, God has a will. God is holy. I'm starting to buy into the fact that it's, it could transform me. It could bring glory to my life. But how? How? That's what I want to talk about. How? So point two is the power for the transformation. It's not going to be clear, by the way, at the end of this sermon. I'm going to do as clear as I can, and you're going to have a lot of things answered and a lot of questions raised, and that's how it's going to go for the next five weeks. But 99% of the way you and I deal with the problems in our life is according to the patterns of the world. That's what we do. What do I mean? Most of us face a problem... And when you think of the four steps, the 10 steps, if we'll just do that, when you hear a friend with a problem, oh, you know what you ought to do? Try dieting, get off, you know, get off uh, gluten. We We throw solutions out. Nothing wrong with these solutions, right? But really what that is, is something we learn from Adam and Eve, and that is figure life out apart from God. We put the imperatives before the indicatives. We have a problem. Rather than saying, wait a minute, 
I'm in Christ. And we go back to the indicatives. I'm, I'm in Christ. I'm a child of God. I've been adopted. There is therefore now no condemnation. What we often will do is go, what things, imperatives, can I do to erase the frustrations of my life to get to the indicative I want? I want to be happy. I want to feel great. Do you understand what I'm saying? A parent, you'll hear parents, I just want my kids to be happy. Oh, really? If that meant murdering your dog. If that made them happy, thank you. Thank you, Zane. Would that be okay? Well, no, no, no. There are some things I don't want. So that's not, we're choosing the wrong indicatives. I don't want my kids, I want my kids to be in Christ. I tell you that'll lead to happiness. Okay? That's what we're working toward. Paul is constantly, uh, he points to the mercies of Romans 12, 1 through 2 as the power source. He says, I, I mean, of, of Romans 1 through 12, 11 as the power source. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God. And theologians have said, well, is that the mercies from chapter 11, the mercies from 10 and 11? Charles Hodge says this, all doctrines of justification, of grace, of election, and final salvation taught in the preceding 11 chapters are in view by this word in chapter 12, verse 1. When Paul says, by the mercies of God, he is saying all that you've learned in chapters 1 to 11 are going to be the power source for verses 1 and 2. I think a lot of us as Christians have zero idea of how to connect those two things. How does my indicative of being in Christ lead to my change of behavior? I think oftentimes we're really at a loss. We really don't know how to do that. So we're trying to unpack that. And the answer is, if you look at all the problems, chapters 1 through 11, it's this. It's summed up in this. We live by law. Now, it's taken me years to understand that. I'm going to try to unpack that in three seconds, three minutes. Um, that's two different things. Um, when we say the word law, like the law is not bad. God's law is glorious. Right? When Paul says the word world, sometimes it's like the beautiful creation, and sometimes it's fallen creation. The word flesh can mean we're the embodied humanity we all have that is glorious, made in the image of God, or it can mean the fallen parts of our nature. So when we come to the word law, especially when it's used negatively, what Paul has in view is not God's glorious, royal, beautiful law that reveals his nature. He has in mind the things we do to really try to keep him away because we're doing what we're supposed to do. We've dumbed it down to achievable things that we feel good about. And you see, for example, in chapter 7, where Paul says, when the law came to life... I died. In other words, when I really grasped what it means to not covet, like I was melted. There was nothing I could do. So to be driven by law necessarily means you're not actually following the glorious law of Christ. We're actually following some sort of rules by which we measure ourselves by, and they're always the wrong things, and they're always dumbed down. In chapter, in 1 Corinthians 15, I'm going to go even further, where Paul says, the sting of death is sin. Okay, what's he saying? Death came into the world. Of course, we didn't all just collapse in death. We, we live dead in our trespasses. And the sting of that is the sin. Now, as Christians, we've been redeemed. We've been re, re, 
uh, reborn, but there's a part of us that is still fallen, and it has sin as well. And that's a sting, he says. But the power of sin, what's giving sin the power, is law. So I'll read the verse again. 1 Corinthians 15, 56. The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. And then he says this in verse 57. But thanks be to God in 1 Corinthians 15, 57. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the point. We're trying to get better by law, by pressure. Here's an example. I don't know. This kind of will, I, I, this will sort of work. The, the pro golfers aren't in the room, so I'm okay. If you're a kid on a putting green, putting four-foot putts, what are you doing? This one's for the U.S. Open. You know, oh, the tree, you know, and you putt it, and it goes in. Ah. Okay. Then you actually go to the real U.S. Open, and you put that pro four feet away, and he puts it. He's not doing that. He's trying to tell himself, and Chris verified this. He says, when you practice, practice like all the cameras are on. Everyone's, you know, when you're playing in the tournament, pretend there's no pressure. The pro, the guys that succeed can do the putting stroke the way it's designed because somehow they have figured out how not to feel all the pressure I would feel in that moment. I would walk up and whiff the putt. Like I would literally miss the ball out of all the pressure. And the point is this, what we do to get better at things just by nature is we just put on the pressure. We just start ratcheting up the daydreams, ratcheting up the obligations, ratcheting up what, I'm going to lose this much, I'm going to do this, I'm trying to get to some indicative out here. Does that make sense? And Jesus is saying through Paul, no, you're already free. The putt's already gone in. You're already fine. Your life's not about the results of this moment. You're safe. And what happens to the chemicals in our brains when we feel the comfort and the love of God is peace and freedom and flourishing. You see this in the movie uh, Chariots of Fire. There's two characters kind of contrasted, and it's based on the true story of Eric Little and Harold Abrams. Harold Abraham or Abrams says this, contentment. I am 24 and I have never known it. So think of peace. I'm using this sort of a a playoff with the word peace. Contentment, peace, being comfortable. He says, I am forever in pursuit and I don't even know it, what I'm chasing. I'll raise my, now they're sprinters. If you don't know, he's a sprinter. He says, I'll raise my eyes. I'll look down that corridor. It's four feet wide with 10 lonely, hear that word, lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. But will I? Weight, pressure. That's a person who's motivated his entire athletic career on just, just prove yourself. Come on, you can do better. You can do better. Contrast that with Eric Little who says simply, God made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. If you've seen the movie, or if you haven't, go Google actual footage of him running. It's hysterical. He runs with his arms back, flopping in the wind, and his head like this, and he's beating everybody because he's feeling the pleasures of God. That's the power. That is the power. So if you're wondering, like, what's going to happen if I just believe that Jesus loves me and and I begin to uh, accept that reality, am I going to keep doing things? Pause. You've just exposed unbelief 
You've just wandered into Romans 6. Two weeks from now, we'll talk about it. Shall I sin that grace may abound? By no means. But what that reveals is my entire DNA of self-improvement and transformation is based on flesh. And Paul is saying, you have this opportunity to be transformed for the renewal of your mind. So let's talk about what that looks like in the next six or seven minutes. Process. Process. How does that view of God's mercy change me to where I desire his will? That's points one and two. And we're looking at the process. And he tells us, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. I think a lot of people read that and rightly think, I'll read my Bible, I'll learn good doctrine, I'll, I'll study the Westminster Confession of Faith, I'll do these things that will renew my mind, and then I'll know God's will. Well, I would say, that's a great beginning. I highly recommend that beginning. But the, the challenge is the word sacrifice. What I mean is, to get the rewiring of the brain is not just simply going to happen through reading, casual reading of, of of the Bible. It's going to happen when we bring our entire person to the scripture and let it soak into us and form us. So look at the words, the imperatives in verse 2. Do not be trans- do not be conformed by the world, do not be conformed by this world, but be transformed, metamorphosis, metamorphos- metamorphoseo, whatever. By the renewal of your mind. That is, be completely and totally transformed. What, what Paul is saying is, here's the gospel, okay? Here's your brain. You know those old commercials? Here's your brain on drugs. Here's your, gospel, here's your brain on the law, and it's these fried eggs, okay? He's saying, no, quit doing that. The law is a frying pan. Don't put your brain on it. What you want to do is saturate it with peace. Saturate it with mercy. Saturate it with the indicatives Go back into Romans 6 and 7 and 8 and reread the fact that God has chosen you and loves you and adopted you and justified you and he is your righteousness. Let that soak in and it will begin to transform you. But I want us to look at the word sacrifice. What do you think he means by that? Like it's a very interesting phrase. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. What an odd choice of words. A sacrifice, by definition, is death. You don't sacrifice something living. Like, hey, it's alive. We sacrificed it. It's dead, and that's what a sacrifice is. So what is he saying? Well, I believe what he is saying is that repentance is the fuel for growth. What is repentance? It's coming back through a change of mind, to the original place you began in Christ. When you become a Christian, you die to the old way and you live to Christ. And that makes you, in Christ, his Holy Spirit comes in, you're, you're, you're born again, you're transformed, you're regenerated. That's what happens at conversion. All the blessings of Christ are given to you legally. But what Paul is saying is now, we have a process of renewal and it's gonna take you Ready? We're about to do some remodel in our home, and you're kind of always waiting for how long is it going to take? Like a week? No, no, no. Like maybe six months. Oh. This renewal project is going to take you till the day you die or till Jesus comes home. This is the way it looks. Sacrifice. I've never personally offered my body physically. Have you, has, raise your hand. 
You've offered your body physically as a sacrifice? Yeah, well, fair enough. Fair enough. Okay, ladies. Mothers and, yes, well played. And I've not done that. But what, what does it look like spiritually to do that? To say, here's a place in my life that is bad. It's not going well, and I want to renew it. I've got to actually stop controlling it. I've got to stop trying to force it. I've got to like free fall in a way and let Jesus have that and, and actually repent of the fact that I'm trying to change my behavior to get to something rather than changing it because of something. That's where we're going, right? I, wanna, I want to grow, but have you identified the fact that your sin is more than likely there because you're trying to keep Jesus away from you? So often we get caught up in the outer sin, like what, just name a sin pattern, name an area of struggle in your own mind, and realize there is a deeper sin of trying to keep Jesus away from you and live life apart from you, and that is the essence of all sin. I've got this. It started with your parents, Adam and Eve. I've got this. God is not good. The serpent just told me I can do this on my own. I'm going to try that for a little while. How's that working out for you? And so the gospel is freeing us to, to say with, with Paul, I'm going to read verses Romans 7, to 8, 7, 4 to 8, 1. Oh, wretched man that I am. We were saying John Newton's amazing grace, that we were wretches. But now he goes on, Paul says, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. What is he saying? Yes, I want with my whole mind to follow God. That's the goal, the law of God. But my flesh is continuing to try to do it alone. My flesh is kind of trying to continue to solve all of my problems on its own. And so he says in Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What? Like, that's the problem. We're so terrified of condemnation. We're so terrified of saying, Lord, I did this. Or I'm trying to live life from you. The contempt and the shame. And he's saying, you are free. That's the indicative when you begin to get that inside of you, you'll grow and revive. Another place where this comes out is Galatians 3. Next week, we'll look at Galatians 2.20. I'll just tell you, at the end of 2.20, and right in Galatians 3, he says, Oh, you foolish Galatians. He wrote Galatians before Romans. So he's formulating all of the same thoughts. Who has bewitched you? He says, It was before your very eyes that Jesus Christ was portrayed as crucified. They didn't see it physically, but they were told through the gospel presentation that Jesus died on a cross for them. And he says, let me ask you, did you begin by doing works of the law or by the Spirit? The answer, of course, the Holy Spirit. Why are you now trying to perfect yourself, transform yourself through works of the law? We do that. He's, we need to come back to the gospel, guys. Come back to what we believe. Just two little illustrations that kind of tease this out. I'm going to quickly move through them. First one, after World War II, like in the 60s, I'm going to, historians are going to get me after this. Richard will talk later. Some ships came up to some of the islands. Different visitors would come to the surrounding Pacific islands 
And, you know, it's 15 years after World War II. And they, maybe they're there to do research. Maybe they're there to vacation. And these soldiers, these old men with, like, no meat on their bones would run out and attack. Of course, they didn't do anything because they were very tired and weak. They thought what? This is a true story. You can research this. They were still operating as if the emperor was in charge and the war had not ended. They had never heard the news. They lived for years under the impression that they were still at war. And anybody that came to their island was going down. Now, again, they weren't very good at fighting, and I don't think there was any tragedies that I know of, you know. But do you get the image? The discipline to live according to the old imperial system 16 years later. Yeah, we get that. We all do that very well. We all continue to live that way. And so Paul's saying, repent of that. Return to Jesus. Offer your bodies to sacrificing. Secondly, uh, this is not that great of an illustration, but it just hits close to home. The electricity went out. Susie was cleaning on Friday. She's like, hey, the electricity went out. I'm hearing beeping. Everything in this place got reset. To where even this morning, like our, our monitor doesn't come on. And like you realize when the electricity goes out, like how many things run on systems and need to be reset. I don't really know if I have a good point there. I just want to tell you. It's a hard morning. It's like, ah, poor Coleman and Mark. I got back there and started pushing the buttons, and Mark was like, please stop doing that. (laughs) His actual words were, you're terrifying me. (laughs) What you realize is when you reset things, like how many things are tied to the central system? And what Paul is saying is, yes, you know that you're saved, but how many things have not been reset? How many things are still beeping? How many things are still operating like, like the factory default that needs to be updated in the gospel? Are you applying the gospel to, your, to all of the places of your life? Guys, I have a lot more, but I want to kind of bring it to a close. That's why we're doing uh, six um, um, series, six sermons. So I'm going to just read you from John 17. Here's our Lord and Savior, the one whom is beautiful. Here's what he says in John 17 to his heavenly father. He lifted up his eyes in verse seven, chapter 17 to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to those whom you have given him. If you're a Christian, you're Jesus's. That prayer is for you. And he goes on in verse 10. All of mine are yours. That's Jesus saying, all of mine are yours, Father. And yours are mine. And I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, the people that you've given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Okay, here's what Jesus just prayed. The mystery of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, I can't explain it, you can't explain it. A similar mystery exists between our union with Jesus. We're going to talk about that next week, but here's the point. When you became a Christian, you became united to Christ, you are his. And the problem is where the factory default says you've got this on your own. So begin, the application of the sermon is to go through all the ways you're still living apart from him. Whether that's how you 
do your finances, how you, what career you're pursuing, how you parent, how you seek a spouse, how you seek entertainment. Take all those places and bring them to Jesus and say, how are we, who are in union together, supposed to do it? And pray those prayers. And it's a process. But guess what's going to happen after that? You're going to have to die a little bit. Jack Miller, I'm going to close with this, had five cheer-up statements. Cheer up, number one. Cheer up. God's grace is greater than you ever hoped. Cheer up. Like, guys, right now, like, smile. God's grace is greater than you ever hoped. Cheer up, number two. Ready to smile for this one? You're far worse than you ever dared hope knowing. Like, you're really bad in your core, okay? Not in your way you were designed to be, but your flesh. Cheer up for that. Why? Because, cheer up three, the Spirit works mightily in your weakness. Four, and this goes more into our passage, cheer up because God's kingdom is more wonderful. That is his holiness, his ways, his kingdom is more wonderful than you ever dared believe. And last but not least, cheer up, we get to die together. We get to die to our flesh together. It's fun. You find this spot where you're living apart from Jesus and you simply die. Say, Jesus, I want you to rule and reign here. It feels awful. And then you feel peace, and he begins to transform you there. Let's pray. Lord, we long for transformation, but so many of, much of the time we're doing it in our own power, and we're just messing it up. And then we're telling other people to do the same thing, and we're messing them up. So, Lord, I pray as Christians, as sons and daughters, as those whom Jesus, as you prayed for in chapter 17 of, of John, our names were on your mind. We are now in union with you. We are abiding in you. Teach us then, Lord, to renew our minds, to be transformed through that renewal because of those mercies. And Lord, we recognize it's going to be hard to unplug from self and to transfer that plug to you. But I pray you would do that for us. Give us hope of that transformation. Let us partner with you and find you all the more lovely. Amen.